0: Um, And it's just a choice. Like you can choose to sort of be cynical and you can choose to spend time with them, or you can choose to to sort of face the world with open eyes and optimism and wonder. And and I think you'll find yourself in a much better position to come up with
1: something creative and exciting that you want to spend your time on. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu. And thank you so much for giving me the next 13 minutes of your time. I promise it will be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Jake Levine, who is the former founder and CEO of Electric Objects, named one of Time Magazine's 25 best inventions of 2014. He started the company in 2013 to explore ambient computing and the future of art. In 2017, Electric Objects was acquired by Giphy, which is basically the Google of GIFs. Before Electric Objects, Jake was the former general manager of Dig, a BetaWorks company which was acquired in 2012. Jake is now a part-time VC at Notation Capital, and he's also a product manager at Square. We cover a lot of ground in this very chilled interview with Jake. We talk about his time at Dig and the painful process of starting a company. Jake, thank you for coming on the show today. Happy to be here. So, Jake, when you are at an event, how do you introduce
0: yourself? Um, well, lately, uh, it's that um, I usually start with, Hi, I'm Jake, and I am trying to figure out what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> uh, you don't
1: lead with uh, fascinated by humans and what the internet does? <laughs> no, that's, that's <laughs> good, do for, good for Twitter bios, not good for real life. No. Okay, so um, before we get into, I guess, where you're at now, which is figuring out what the next steps are, let's go back a little bit and um, talk to me a little bit about early life and how you actually got into tech.
0: Yeah, so probably didn't, um, well, I guess I was always a little bit nerdy, um, had a secret addiction to World of Warcraft and and EverQuest when I was a teenager, um, and uh, probably sort of uh, got a little bit more formally interested in the tech industry. In college, my roommate and I started getting um, sort of fed off of one another and um, reading TechCrunch and Tim O'Reilly's blog and Fred Wilson's blog. Mm-hmm. And um, this was in like 2005, 6, 7. So kind of the bit of the doldrums for, for the tech industry, right, between the sort of booms of the 90, late 90s and the boom of the sort of early 2010s um, post-iPhone. And so it was a time when, you know, I, I think we were sort of um, – a tiny bit early for our for our sort of graduating class. Um, most everyone else was thinking about um, banking, consulting, or we went to Wesleyan, so it was law school, and um, you know the Peace Corps, Teach for America, mm. um, and so we we sort of got interested in it together, and then found ourselves um, in tech
1: related roles right out of college. Nice. So kind of like. Did you guys have like an entrepreneurial itch then or you didn't even think about that? You were just like, oh, we're into tech, let's, let's just see where the wind blows.
0: Yeah, I think it was, you know, it, it, it was evolving. Um, I actually ended up going into investment banking yeah. right out of school um, in a tech coverage group, luckily enough. So this was like 2007, and I think I actually applied to be in the financial sponsors group because like private equity and hedge funds were the hot thing at mm-hmm. the time. Um, I didn't get in. I ended up in the tech group, which was my second choice um, and was ultimately the right choice, and I should have just applied right for it yeah. because it was what I was sort of the subject matter that I was interested in. Um, I think we my, my roommate and I had an itch, but we both felt like let's go get some experience first and then um, you know, sort of follow our noses. He went to Google. I went to Morgan Stanley. Um, we sort of continued to evolve our interest and and passion for the industry and for entrepreneurship. Um, and then ultimately, uh, you know, after getting fired from investment banking, um, sort of found myself more squarely in the tech industry.
1: Oh, wow. Why did you get fired?
0: Um, you know, looking back, I think, uh, I think I didn't like it. And I'm not the kind of person who can do a good job of, of hiding that. Mm. I can't sort of fake interest in something. And yeah. um, it was also a pretty poisonous um, culture, uh, at, at I you think can imagine. No like, <laughs> um, in, investment banking in 2008, like Lehman oh, was wow, across yeah. the street from us. There were cameras outside every day. Um, I had to like sneak around. Michael Moore was filming outside once, so I had to go out the other exit. Um, it was a, it was not a fun time to be in banking and, and most of the, the analyst programs are structured so that after about nine to 12 months, most people are thinking about are sort of checked out anyways, cause they've yeah. got their next job lined up. So I hit my 12 month mark and was pretty, um, pretty unhappy and kind of just punching the clock and had, you know, had trouble faking interest. And I think they noticed that. So it was good for both of us. I ended up joining a client of ours at the time, a company called the ladders, which yeah. in 2000. 10 was, you know, a hot, hot property in New York, um, growing like crazy, you know, tens of millions of dollars in annual revenue, um, you know, millions of registered users, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. So it was kind of an awesome place to be. Um, and Mark Senadella, the CEO, uh, past and current CEO, um, you know, offered to take me on sort of an apprenticeship role. Yeah. Uh, We called, the title was sort of made up, but, um. You know, just like I,
1: what I did at Greatest when I was coming to that time. Yeah, so I like think, random... I mean,
0: totally. And those roles are are rarely posted. Um, they usually come from just sort of networking and making mm-hmm. yourself open and, uh, to new to sort of new things and demonstrating your passion. And I think he recognized in me, uh, you know, like I wanted to start a company one day. Um, I had a little bit of business background. I was interested in product um, and, you know, I, I spent a year in banking, so I would work really hard for him. And, um, so he brought me on to help with all sorts of things. And that was a great sort of introduction to internet companies, um, that, uh, you know, post, post my banking, um, career.
1: Nice. And what was their product? What were they what were they doing?
0: So the ladders uh, is and was an online job search site. Cool. So it's sort of like, like monster 2.0. If you remember monster.com yeah. or career builder, it was sort of a second generation of, of um, job sites, uh, their their sort of unique contribution to the market in in when they launched in um, the early mid two thousands was that they charged the job seeker, so they would charge you if you were looking for jobs twenty five dollars a month or twenty dollars a month for access to their premium jobs, and they would they would curate the the job seekers and offer a sort of a differentiated offering to the recruiters. The business has changed a bit since then, but that's, you know, what made them unique back then. And then they were, the business was doing super well and growing like crazy.
1: Nice. So when I was doing that role at Greatest, um, you know, the family gave me complete access, access all areas. I got to look underneath the hood, right? What were some of the things that you found that they did really well as a company?
0: I mean, the ladders and, you know, what Mark is really strong at is, um, you know, one, he's like super analytical. So it was a real data-oriented organization and it schooled me in business intelligence, in direct marketing. Um, they were early to, this is, dating, this is dating the ladders and me a little bit, but they were really early to figuring out AdWords. And so, oh, wow. um, you know, there was this massive new distribution channel opening up. Um, they were, were just hacking it in a way that like very few other startups and companies at the time had figured it out. So they had a jump on, on distribution. Um, they were extremely methodical and measured every detail of the subscriber life cycle. Yeah. We were getting into pretty intense cohort analyses. We had a big BI team. Um, and my job was to sort of, you know, the CEO would have a question, um, and I would, go answer it. And sometimes that meant working with the head of product or the head of BI or the, you know, the recruiter sales team and, um, and preparing an answer and, you know, getting ready for board meetings and investor meetings. And, um, it was kind of just like a do whatever, anything from like take notes in an executive meeting and send it around weekly to, you know, spin up a pilot program and really get my hands dirty building something on my own in the organization. Um, and it was one of those jobs where, you know, the, the sort of, um, some of the most interesting moments were when I was doing some of the most menial work. So like taking notes is not something that you want to do when you're, you know, you just graduated from school and you spent a year at Morgan Stanley and, (laughs) but like, honestly it was, you know, it was an opportunity to sit in a room with a bunch of internet executives who, um, you know, had 10, 15 years of experience Mm -hmm. on me and I just got to watch them and that experience was invaluable.
1: Yeah, the power dynamics in those
0: board meetings, right? Yeah, yeah, the power dynamics, but also just the sort of clarity of thought, the comfort with ambiguity, mm. getting to see what an executive looks like up close, um, and then being able to sort of pull them aside and show them you're interested and ask questions. And um, it's, a, it's a really, you know, I, I encourage um, any young sort of wannabe entrepreneurs to go find a company that they're passionate about and cold email the CEO, um, and just tell him like, you, you know, tell him or her, like, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to spend some time with you. Like, let me know if I can come join, come like help you out on any projects for 30, yeah. 60, 90 days. I think demonstrating like a real passion and interest and probably following up three or four times can't help too. Um, uh, can't help either, but, but those roles are rarely posted and you kind of have to make them yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's literally how I got mine. Yeah. Um, so that was actually going to be my next question. I would, you actually recommend this role? To someone else, which you did. Um, yeah. Like, what were some of the things that, like, the tangible, I guess, learning that you took from this opportunity? Um,
0: a bunch of things. I mean, you know, it was my first exposure to a growing, fast-growing internet company. Right. It was my first exposure to real product development. Um, my first exposure to sales. My first exposure to investor and board management. Um, you know, financing. Um, Hiring, it was just, it was everything, right? And it was like, um, it was like a business school, um, but personal. up close and personal. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, there's a business school class or case study on the ladders and I got to live that for a year and a half and went to, I, I went to HBS with Mark, uh, the CEO, to hear the business school case study presented and discussed and it was funny to see these you know, these, these, these MBAs in a room, like debating these sort of esoteric notions that I got to sort of mm. employ and play with on a daily basis. And I think it, you know, the role really depends on the relationship with the, the, you know, your boss and okay. your, and how serious they take mentorship. Mark took it very seriously and still does. He'll check in with me monthly to, you know, see how I'm doing. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, that, that matters a lot. I could see it going wrong in a lot of different ways. You also have to approach it with like a ton of humility because, you know, showing up into, you know, showing up into the office of the VP of product and saying like, Hey, I'm here on behalf of the CEO. Um, but I'm 23 years old, um, you know, comes with a decent amount of, uh, I think there's the, the, that VP of product might be a little bit skeptical, and yeah. so you have to kind of approach it in a very um, friendly and humble way. Um, so I think if you can if you can get those two things right, it can be a super rewarding experience.
1: Oh, absolutely, I, I totally agree. So after that experience, you kind of fell into, I guess, where we are right now, Betaworks. <laughs> yeah, I think um,
0: falling into falling in is a good is a good um, it's a good way to describe sort of most of my career transitions. I yeah. think um, uh, so. You know, I was at the Ladders for about a year and a half. I think one of the things about these roles is that um, you know, as 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 fun as it is to take notes in an executive meeting, at some point you do you know, need to get your hands dirty and actually do something and it's right. It's less about sort of like sort of lubricating the organization and more about actually contributing something. And so after about a year, year and a half, I think Mark and I both realized that like this sort of apprenticeship had run its course a bit. And so I tried to find a fit at the ladders and worked on a different project for a bit, but I think ultimately um, was pulled into Betaworks because it was an opportunity to really start something from scratch. Um, and, and John Borthwick, who's the CEO here, um, has become another mentor of mine. And, um, and, uh, and I met him, I shared with him some of my ideas about the social web in like 2011 and 12. Um, I shared with him a passion for entrepreneurship, um, mm-hmm. a willingness to just sort of work hard and and see things through, um, and I think he saw in me an opportunity to you know bring some entrepreneurial energy to this sort of second generation of BetaWorks companies. Right. So for those that don't know, BetaWorks is a studio um, and an investment fund here in New York City. We're actually sitting in their offices right now. Um, the studio builds companies, so they partner with entrepreneurs. Um, to sort of uh, bring founding teams together work on ideas that they come up with that you know in, in my case that I came up with with John and with another engineer um, and uh, and and sort of operate those companies out of the studio the fund, Is the sort of second part of it uh, is a typical seed stage investment fund. And the fund and the studio tend to sort of work well together. The fund makes the studio better, the studio makes the fund better. And third, they have camps, which are um, where they every three or four times a year um, they'll sort of do a camp around a theme. It looks more like an accelerator. Hundreds of people apply, they pick eight teams, they fund those teams through the investment fund. Um, those teams work out of the studio, so it's a bit of a hybrid between the studio and the and the VC fund. Um, I think their last
1: one was the voice protocol.
0: Yeah, they've done they've done Voice Camp, which was focused on the sort of Alexa ecosystem. There, yeah. they just launched or starting soon Vision Camp, which is about augmented reality. Yeah. Um, it's an amazing program. So when I was here, they were mostly just doing uh, the sort of investing in the studio work. I jumped into the studio, ended up pairing up with uh, an engineer who was working on um, a product called News.me. News.me was a project that actually originated in the New York Times. Uh, Mike Young is the the sort of lead throughout the whole product's whole life. Um, Mike came over from the New York Times to Betaworks. I met him. Uh, John, Mike, and I decided to spin News.me out into a separate company and launch it like a startup. Uh, We worked on that for about a year and a half, built a team. I got to learn all about recruiting. I got to learn about product development. How do you sort of like... Explore a product space without a specific sort of, um, you know, uh, this was this is something that Beta Works I think does well. They, you know, a lot of companies start with a problem statement and sort of um, find their way to a solution. I think I think um, uh, John does a good job of setting up an environment here where it's sort of more exploratory and you're mm. kind of feel you're kind of groping your way through the darkness to find something sort of tangible that mm. feels like. You know, the, the probably the most like common thing stated in the walls of BetaWorks is like I think there's something there. But, like we can't really sort of articulate <laughs> yeah, why. Yeah. Um,
1: and that's what News Me was.
0: Yeah, News Me was an exploration of um, a different way of discovering, uh, reading, talking about the news. So we looked at Twitter and saw like this incredibly new and powerful medium of distribution yeah. that was um, dependent on the quality of your social graph. And we said, how can we build? Um, a piece of software that has this kind of value that we love and use daily, but doesn't require you to spend a long time building your network, um, curating and pruning that network, yeah. um, that evolves with your interests, that is more sort of connected to what your friends are talking about, but that doesn't require all this upfront work. This is also a time when Twitter was actively sort of promoting their ecosystem and their platform for developers. Um, and so uh, uh, the, it was also a moment when the iPad had just launched and nice. um, Apple was making a lot of noise about, you know, how this could be a new platform for a new kind of magazine and yeah. introduce a subscription product. So we sort, of, we sort of explored both of those things together. Um, we ended up building a decent audience of, like, news junkies, um, but failed to sort of, like, get outside of that, you know, early audience. Um, about a year and a half into it, we had the opportunity. We met the, the guys that were running Dig at the time. Um, so this is Kevin Rose is on the board and some of his investors and Matt Williams was the CEO. Yeah, and um, News
1: to Me sounds similar to Dig.
0: Yeah. So that that'll become clear in a second. So <laughs> Dig, um, for those that don't know, was sort of like a behemoth of Web two in the early two thousands. Um, it preceded Reddit and had at its peak tens of millions of monthly uniques, like maybe two
1: hundred thirty six million.
0: There you go. 236 million <laughs> monthly uniques had a mass, had sort of massive valuations attached to it. Um, ended up just kind of like not working uh, for a hundred reasons. And that many podcasts have been filled talking about, you know, describing the demise of Dig. Mm. We met those guys when Digg was, you know, down to a few, monthly, few million monthly uniques. Um, they were looking for a good home for the community. Uh, we saw it as an opportunity to take the technology that we had built for news.me and bring right. it to a more mainstream audience. And so we had, we we acquired the assets of Dig. Um, we gave ourselves uh, six weeks to relaunch this site, this like sort of incredible brand, this like legacy site. It was built on like, it was built on data centers that could scale to hundreds of millions of people, um, you know, before AWS. Mm-hmm. And if we... Um, basically, the, the sort of short story is that we had six weeks to, to rebuild it because, on in week seven, we'd have to pay the next data center bill, which would basically make the deal unaffordable. Wow! Um, because it was so expensive.
1: <laughs> Talk about <Yeah. laughs> tight deadline.
0: <laughs> yeah. So our our little team of ten had to sort of relaunch the site with you know uh, millions of monthly uniques in a pretty short amount of time. Wow. Um, fortunately, we had a lot of tech already built, and we had an amazing team of engineers, designers. Um, and so we, uh, we did that and, and it, was, it was a ton of fun and that launched in I think 2012 mm. and, and we became Dig.
1: And then did you make the launch in time for the payment? We did. Yeah, we, we <laughs> launched on time.
0: There are uh, lots of good sort of news stories from that time, yeah. um, Wired did a, a big sort of you know, behind the scenes look at the relaunch and it was just fun to be a part of such a storied brand um and uh fun to sort of be engaged with the team on something so important to such a to such a great community. Um uh you know there was there were stories like Dig is dead, like you know, and then Dig is back and and it was it was Dig is buried. (laughs) Yeah, it was fun to (laughs) it was just fun to to um to be a part of that and to, you know, work with the community and try to win them over and all that stuff.
1: And so, you know, you know, like I said, Dig, you know, in its heyday, had 236 million or so uniques okay. to the site a month. Well, did you feel a lot of pressure when we were trying to relaunch this brand? Were you trying to get it back to that level?
0: Yeah, I mean, everyone in the tech industry in 2012 remembered using Dig at some point, of oh, course, cool. um, and had some history with it. And we'd you know meet these people, and they'd tell us their Dig story. And this, you know, like if they had a startup at the time, like getting on Dig was the most important thing for them yeah. because it would send them you know tens of thousands of users. Um, when we started hearing that, you know, after the relaunch, we would start to hear that again. Like, oh, we were featured on Dig, and it mattered for the first time in a decade. Like that was pretty um, that was pretty exciting for us and. And seeing, you know, what had been um, a site that was kind of, um, it had kind of just sort of devolved, like the, the experience for customers and for casual newsreaders, but also the community. It was, it was just not a very friendly place to be and kind of cluttered and, and to sort of breathe new life into such an important brand for the web was... Um, was, was a ton of pressure, but, um, you know, I think like approaching it with humility and, mm-hmm. and uh, honestly giving ourselves such a short deadline, um, you know, allowed us to come back to market with something with honestly, with low expectations <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that people were like, all right, it only took six weeks. Like, you know, and so I think people were, uh, uh, people were happy with what we delivered, and then and then we sort of consistently improved it over the following months, and kept people, kept our community, our community, our users um, in the loop on on its evolution, and that was that transparency. I think was also important.
1: So, how were you guys trying to acquire new readers? Like, what tactics did you guys use for,
0: at Dig or at News.me? I mean. for Dig, yeah. Um, well, Dig. I mean the the PR around it, the sort of earned media around it was so massive when we started that it had a bit of a flywheel effect. Nice. Um, I think, you know, we also, uh, so, so word of mouth was super important. We never did any any paid advertising for Dig. Um, you know, it would, uh, we were so focused on just like getting the product back to basic that, um, you know, acquisition and growth um, we assumed would come along with like a more, you know, meaningful product experience for our users. Um, so, you know, we focused on getting a mobile app out the door. We focused on getting the homepage experience to be like impeccable. We focused on integrating the news.me technology to offer more personalized experience for people who, um, wanted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we focused on a videos vertical, which, uh, quickly, you know, we understood was an important part of what people were coming to date for yeah. like curated video. Um, and, uh, and then, and then about six months into it, Google Reader announced that it was shutting down. And so we decided to rebuild uh, reader <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> that became our shtick. And so we launched Dig Reader, which was like an RSS. We loved RSS. Our users loved RSS. Google Reader was too small for Google, but big enough for, you know, a startup to, nice. to, to be interested in. And so we set out on a pretty quick pace to, um. Uh, to to sort of catch all those users as they fell, so that was a big acquisition opportunity for us too. Like the millions of people leaving Google Reader needed somewhere to go, and we yeah. wanted to build a new home for them.
1: Also, and so then what happened in the end?
0: Um, dig is still going super yes. well. Yeah, no, uh, sure so. yeah. yeah. <laughs> after about maybe a year or so after the after the acquisition, um, the dig acquisition, um, I was I had some family stuff going on that was pulling me out of the office for a couple days a week. And I found myself, my mind was just wandering a bit. Like I was starting to build projects on the side, which is an indication that like maybe my day job is not sort of keeping my attention in the way that it should. Um, I built like an iOS app that made it easier for you to break up with someone. Um, (laughs) uh, (laughs) What? Yeah. that's a whole other story yeah. it's called it's called breakup text if you're if you're interested is it still um, out there it is still out there uh, <laughs> oh, it's in the app store it hasn't been optimized for iphone 10 unfortunately but um, it was a fun project uh, a bunch of other sort of software projects just to get better and my hands dirty and that was really um, that was a great sort of period it was a very creative period for me and yeah. um, and got a chance to to sort of touch the code and and um, and the projects I worked on were mostly jokes and, and, you know, just like fun things that would capture my attention and my friend's attention. And some of them blew up and some of them, you know, fizzled and that's okay. Cause there was, I had low expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the projects was electric objects. So, or yeah. it was the project that became electric objects.
1: Um, uh, um just coming yeah. to date right now. So. Dig is still going. Is yeah, someone else is running Dig. Yeah, it's
0: going great. So there, it's a team of maybe twenty people or so. Oh, they're wow. in Chinatown here. Um, they uh, they have a fantastic team. A, a new CEO started about six months ago. Mike Young has been the sort of the the, the flag bearer since the very beginning, and he wow. um, and he's leading an amazing team of engineers and designers. And it, it's it's yet it's again like a kind of a great go to news source for yeah. tens of millions of people every month.
1: Just want to die. It
0: won't die, <laughs> and I don't think the team's gonna gonna let it. I think it's doing well, and so I'm excited
1: for them. The cockroach show the stars how well. Okay, so then you went on to electric objects, yeah, which is so um, the le- big thing,
0: yeah. Electric objects started as um. I, I don't know. I got interested in, in physical products and hardware. Um, I was sitting next to... At Dig. we were we were in the same room as Giphy when Giphy was just starting. Oh, wow. um, Giphy, for those that don't know, is the largest um, uh, search engine for GIFs on the planet. Um, they are massive and growing like crazy. they worth,
1: like, what, five billion
0: dollars? I don't think they're worth... It, that, it's but, not, it's <laughs> it's something ridiculous. But they, it's they've, ridiculous. they've raised a decent amount of money and the team is fantastic. And when they started, they were in the same room as Dig. And so um, sort of coincidentally, I had moved into a new apartment. Um, I was looking for art for my walls. Um, and I was browsing the Giphy archives one day when I thought, like, why can't I just enjoy these GIFs on my wall? Um, and like, I don't want a print of a GIF. I want the actual GIF on my wall. And so I started looking at photo frames that could do it but weirdly none of the digital photo frames supported animation or video at the time. And the user interfaces were clunky. And I was like, you know what, I can just, I'm just going to build this (laughs) because I want it and I bet like there are some other friends that would, that would use it. Um, And, uh, and it would, it was sort of in the vein of that long list of sort of projects that I was working on and sort of expressing myself with on the side. Um, And then it just, it just like consumed me. Um, I think the, uh, it, what I what I learned about it was that it was you know a really nice confluence of um, here's a problem that I have and that other people in my generation have yeah. where the artists that they connect with and feel connected to are on Instagram and Tumblr they're not showing at a gallery on Thursday night yeah. um, they're not you know painting and and you know they're not doing painting or photography they're they're like working in the medium that reflects their lives and their generation and um, and that medium is digital and so. Um, you know, what, what the the sort of need that I felt and that other people felt to bring that into the home and to offer it the kind of presence that be, um, that we sort of, uh, associate with paintings and photographs was an interesting one. And then there was another thread, um, that, you know, was, I found really intellectually stimulating, which is, um, computers today, our phones today, our TVs, um, they are in the business of demanding our attention. Um, and, and we feel we have, we have a bad relationship with most of technology. When at, on the weekends, we turn it off and put it in a separate room because we don't want to be near it. We use our phones and then we have like remorse after like spending five or 10 minutes in Twitter. Um, all of the software built on top of today's sort of prominent, um, platforms and hardware platforms, software platforms is typically, um, you know, somehow rewards engagement, whether it's advertising or some other monetization formula. Um, uh, these these tools, this software, ha- is in the business of demanding our attention, and so you have lots of software competing for our attention, um, and a, and a user base, and billions of people now all over the world that feel overwhelmed by the amount of information coming at them and the amount of uh, the sort of sheer demand on their attention. And so um, what I saw in Electric Objects was an opportunity to build a hardware platform um, that didn't demand your attention. Like At its core, it would be incapable of um, sending you a push notification, making noise in your home, mm. asking you to change it. Um, what if we built a computer platform where, um, where persistence, not ephemerality, was the source of value, mm. right? So like on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, like... Uh, ephemerality is, is sort of, you know, m- means that like the content that's there is not going to be there later, so you better check it now. Persistence on your wall, persistence in your home, taking a GIF and saying, you know what, we're going to spend, we're going to put it on your wall and you're going to spend an hour, a day, a week, a month. The longer you spend with that GIF, with that image, with that video on your wall, the more valuable it feels. Um, and so it was kind of an attempt to, to reorient um, uh, our perception of value in, in the digital object and say that actually, if you spend more time with it, if you change it less, mm. if you spend less of your attention on it, um, it can feel more valuable. And then in, as a business, we charge you for that value. So uh, for some of that value, and then we pass the rest of it on to the artist. Um, and just to be clear, what we built was, uh, was a 23 inch <laughs> digital screen, an LCD screen, high definition. We built a beautiful frame around it um, and we built a custom Android operating system that would uh, basically, it, its job was to show you art um and it would you just see full screen images of art animations video images um uh web even web works so like artwork that is a web page that's generative um that uses some external data set to inform how it looks uh and then you would control there were no interfaces on the device itself on the screen, all of the control would happen on your phone. So you'd connect the device to the internet, and then you use your phone um, you know, or your computer to browse our collection of art, see what other people were displaying, follow other people, and then find the art that you like and throw it up on your wall. And you paid two ninety nine dollars for the device and uh, $10 a month for access to all the content.
1: It's why you're saying a lot of stuff. Yes. No, that's good. That's that's really interesting. So you were initially trying to solve your own problem, and then you came up with this idea. So how did you even go about? Was there a lot of tech needed to create that LCD? So did you like create the hardware and then take it to production?
0: Yeah. So I I was you know like anyone new to hardware. um, I spent. A few weeks, probably not that long, but a few weeks sort of wandering around asking people who had built hardware before, like, "How do I do this? Can I do this? Mm. Um, you know, how much money do I, need? Who do I need? Who do I need to hire to help me figure this out?" Um, and it, it at that point was still very much like, a, "You know, this isn't a company. It's just an idea. It's just a project. I just want to build it. And if I can spend less than a few thousand dollars on it, like I can afford it." And I pretty quickly met some contract designers and prototypers who said, okay, great, it'll be like $75,000 to build this. Um, and then I had a meeting with, um, with this guy out West who is another sort of hardware hacker type. And he was like, I think, you am pretty sure you can just like build this for a hundred bucks. <laughs> um, and, um, and so he, you know, he sent me to, uh, Adafruit, which is like a great website for, um, you know, raspberry Pis and cables. Nice. And, um, I bought a, I bought a screen, went to Best Buy and picked up a, a monitor. Yeah. Um, I ripped open the monitor. Um, I sort of booted up a vanilla Android operating system. I like built an app that just showed a picture widescreen and pinged a server for a URL. And, and I was like done. Um, and I built a web app that allowed you to browse a collection and hit display. And then that would set your account to that URL. And then the, the, the Raspberry Pi, the Android operating system would just show that URL. So it was super simple. Um, and, but it, it, what it tested was. I had this thesis that if you took a digital image off of the internet and put it on your wall and lived with it for some amount of time greater than the ten seconds you spend with it on your computer, um, you would you would perceive more value. You would perceive it as more valuable. Like you, it would feel more physical, more tangible, more real. Um, and and if that's the case, then maybe you'd pay for it. And yeah. maybe you can build a sort of digital art ecosystem. Um, and, and monetization model that um, that would be the basis of an interesting business, um, and so that was the test with the prototype.
1: And was that how you pitched it to investors? Because you went on to raise you know, a lot of money, like you raised eight million dollars. You even did a successful crowdfunding campaign. Mm-hmm. Like, was that the the pitch? Just as you told me just
0: now. Yeah. And, you know, and it changed like a hundred times and depending on who you're talking to, you know, the pitch would be different and, and all that. So, um, but, but I think that's, that's the core of it. Like the, the core of it is when we, when we take a digital object and put it on your wall, um, it feels more valuable. And if it feels more valuable, maybe you'll pay for that value and maybe we can build a
1: business on the back of that. Maybe yeah (laughs) that's good Um, and then so discussions around like market size and all of that did that come up or like oh yeah I mean you know yes all the time and how did you define that
0: Um, I mean it's hard I think like there's the fine art market which is um, tens of billions of dollars and everyone believes that it's big and interesting Mm -hmm. Um, we weren't really interested in that customer Um, I think we felt like there was a bigger opportunity in, you know, bringing art to people who had difficulty accessing it, meaning like they don't live in New York city or Paris or LA. Mm -hmm. Um, they don't, you know, have thousands of dollars to spend on a work of art. Um, they don't have the time to like figure out who the artist to have is. They're not buying art as an investment vehicle. They're buying art because like the people we want to target are buying art because they like how it brings something interesting into their home Mm -hmm. or they, they feel some connection to the culture around it or something. So that was the customer we were going after you know, there's, there's a, um, a market of like, you know, prints and paintings that those people buy. And that's also measured in the billions It's actually bigger than, uh, the fine art market. Um, uh, but again, that's not digital. So it was kind of, we had to make an argument that you know the, this behavior could shift over to digital, yeah. um, and so there was always a leap of faith investors needed to take that this market was going to be created, mm. um, and uh, which is, I think you know the basis of any good uh, pitch deck. <laughs> no, that's
1: good, and so. Other than you know figuring out that you could do it for hundred dollars instead of 75000 yeah. dollars, what were some of the other challenges in order to like? So you raised all this money, what did you do next? And um, like, what were some of the hurdles? Yeah,
0: and by the way, like I you know I, I kind of believe that um, there are very few products and businesses out there that you can't test for zero or a very small amount of money. Like I agree. if if you're if you need to, if you have an idea for something and you wanna and you want to go build it. Um, you know and like you're getting stuck because some development shop told you it'd be $30,000 or $10,000 or $50,000 um, you're just thinking about it like I would challenge you to think about it differently and I would challenge you to um, you know identify really what it is that you're testing that's new um, and then and then and then there's, there's probably an easier way for you to get that information.
1: Mm, no, I agree absolutely and then um, so yeah what was other so after you had raised that money what were some other challenges you faced?
0: Um, oh man, lots. Uh, so so uh, so the first um, the first money in was BetaWorks. So um, John was my boss at BetaWorks, and he turns out he had wanted this product for a long time, and I had never known that. Wow. Um, and so he came and saw a very early prototype and said, you know, we'd love to be supportive and um, you know give you some mun- some sort of runway here just to further your experimentation. So that was a two hundred thousand dollar round um, John made it really easy. Um, I think, you know, a testament to the fact that we had worked together for three years and Mm -hmm. this was a space that he knew I was passionate about and it was an intersection with his passion. And so, um, that was a great, uh, that was a great I was very fortunate to sort of be in that position to have some runway at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and so the next step was like assembling a team, um, and everything good. So the next step was assembling a team, uh, which meant finding someone who could help me build the thing, uh, finding someone who could help, um, build a community of artists around it and like activate that community. Those are the two most important sort of first hires. And so I made those, uh, a technical lead was the third hire. Um, someone who could help on the operating system, um, client side, Mm -hmm. um, like build the OS for the device itself, plus the software for that people would use to control the device. Yeah. Um. And uh, and then right before the Kickstarter, um, we we raised a seed round when we had you know a working prototype and a little bit more of a, a sort of a team assembled around the project and um, and uh, a bit more of a clearer vision and story for what we were trying to build.
1: Mm-hmm. Nice. And so then um, then what happened? Did you guys generate revenue? Were you guys selling? Yeah, so stuff? we did.
0: We did a, a Kickstarter. It was about seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of pre-orders um, in a thirty-day you know, Kickstarter campaigns. We were super blown away. Um we were I the goal was like fifty thousand. I was secretly hoping for two hundred thousand and we crossed both of those in the first twenty four hours. Um I think we struck a chord with people. I think also the Kickstarter community is particularly sort of a sweet spot for tech meets art. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think um, so I think and I think we told a we told a good story that people connected with, um, and so that was that was a great sort of starting point for us. Um, that was April of two thousand fourteen. We shipped our first fifty or so units January of two thousand fifteen, and then we shipped you know two to three thousand units wow. in August. So we were a couple months late, but which is on time for Kickstarter. Yeah. and um, Even if you get something out. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Okay, um, so we shipped those those products, and then we raised um, another round. Uh, this time with Bessemer uh, leading the um, the Series A. Yeah,
1: you got some great people there. Yeah. Fast fast round. Yeah,
0: first round did the seed. Ari did the seed, um, and then Bessemer did the Series A. All you know, kind of off off thesis probably for most of our investors. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in that it's hardware. In that it's digital art. In that it's a category that um, didn't, doesn't exist. And I think the sort of, you know, what ultimately brought people around, um, was the product experience itself. So like Finn from first round was our investor. Like he was like, okay, this is interesting, but I don't, I don't really get it. I left the prototype in his office for a week and he came back and decided to want to do the deal. Bessemer, uh, Rob Stavis was the lead partner on the deal and Charles Birnbaum, uh, they spent, they said, no. Then they said, okay, how about we put in a hundred thousand and they, two weeks later said, okay, how about we lead the whole round? So that was like, the difference was nothing I said. It was all about like their experience with the product and mm. people would come over and see it and talk about it. And so they felt like there was something interesting there and it was worth sort of deviating from their thesis and taking a bet on hardware, which is a which is a hard bet.
1: Yeah, and I guess they were probably more excited the fact that you might be a startup that could actually make real money <laughs> by actually selling your product and generating Yeah, I
0: mean, at the Series A stage, like, you know, that's, this isn't totally true because we live in a world of exceptions, but, you know, you want to, I think most investors are looking for a clear path to, to revenue. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we were still early in that regard because while we were selling the product, we were doing it at a low margin because we were leaning on sort of growth to be our story. Uh, and we were, um, we hadn't launched our subscription yet, which was a core part of the yeah. thesis, but
1: um, we hadn't tested it yet. Yeah. So then, um, you know, you raised all this money, you've got a team. Got this product. You've shipped a couple thousand, and then what happens? Yeah, so hit a roadblock or something. Yeah,
0: we hit. I mean, we hit a couple, um, a bunch of things. I would do differently. So um, the 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 end of the story, which I'll which I'll work my way to. The end of the story is that a few months ago we sold the company to Giphy, um, which is also the beginning of the story. If you remember, Um, so kind of fitting in that respect. Um, Giphy is a great home for the for the customers and our artist community. We work with a lot of the same artists. Um, We sort of think about the world in the same way, and so I was happy to find a good home for, for the product there. Um, not, not like a, this isn't like a home run sort of exit for anyone, and so um, a couple of the things that, that sort of you know, made the difference for us, I'll, I'll get into those now. So, uh, you know, getting into a hardware startup, I think I and my investors learned a lot along the way. Um, the there's a sort of core um, challenge, which is that unlike software, where when you add a million users, it costs you, you know, a few hundred dollars extra in server hosting fees. Yeah. When you add um, a million users, if your product costs $200, you need $200 million of capital yeah. to, to, uh, to even like furnish them with yeah. inventory, right? Yeah. And so you have companies like Casper and the sort of other companies where the product is a little more commoditized, where these sort of um, production cycles are a lot less risky or a lot faster, the sort Mm -hmm. of working capital profiles are a lot, a lot closer to software. Still difficult, but closer. Mm -hmm. Um, We were in a long lead time, expensive product, low margin on the hardware because we were focused on growth and getting people to. uh, ultimately move them into the subscription, which we did launch and which was successful, but was a little too, little too late. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so we were never properly capitalized for the business we were trying to build. We're, rather, we were never properly capitalized for the pace that we were attempting to grow the business that we were trying to build. Um, and I think that was a learning experience for me and certainly for my, my investors and my board, um, who were historically, you know, mostly software VCs. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think what we're, what we're proud of is like kind of, you know, testing a new market, building a beautiful product that lots of people still, thousands of people are still enjoying in their homes. I think if we were to do it again, we would probably, um, we'd probably capitalize it a little bit differently. We'd probably pace our growth a little bit differently. Um, and we'd probably think about margins and the sort of balance between growth and profitability a little bit differently.
1: So were they trying to help, were they trying to make you guys grow like they would one of their tech
0: startups? Um, yeah, but, but, you know, so was I, like, you know, yeah. and it wasn't, it wasn't so much that they're breathing down my neck and telling me how to run the business. I think we were, we were swinging for the fences and we kind of gave ourselves, we, we kind of designed the business in such a way that there would be two possible outcomes. One is that we would hit the ball over the fence mm-hmm. and two is that we would have to find a home for it if you're somewhere else where, because we, we had sort of, you know, been so aggressive with our spend. Um, and so aggressive with our margins and and sort of leaned deep so deeply into growth
1: yeah and and like once you found the home with Giphy how, how did you feel after
0: uh, I mean, tremendous relief in some, in some respects. Uh, obviously, I wish we had built like a billion dollar sustainable business. And there's, you know, besides just the way that we designed the business, I think there's sort of market timing reasons that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that would have made that difficult. Um, but, uh, but the, you know, Giphy as a home for the product is kind of a perfect fit. Um, their Giffy Arts program is, um, I think, sort of uh, best in class in the industry. Like their focus on cultivating creators and um, and artists, and making sure they're a part of their sort of path to. You know, um, to profitability and and path to growth is really important. Um, They have a whole team focused on you know working with artists and a pretty meaningful budget associated with it. Um, They, uh, like I said, we our artist communities overlap pretty meaningfully. Our user communities overlap pretty meaningfully, and so it's kind of a great brand fit. um, And uh, and it was a very easy transition for um, for the product.
1: Nice. Just want to work towards like wrapping up now. Um, I guess in a general sense. You've had a very interesting career. <laughs> uh, so what are some of like the top three key takeaways for yourself from your career, whether it be a dig or with electric objects, um, or even that ladder, like you can say, okay, these three principles are what I live by and this is what I would advise people. To
0: kind of. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think people will, um, advice is one of those things where you'll, you'll kind of get what you ask for. So like, mm. depending on who, like you'll get the, you'll, you'll, you know, think if you, if you ask someone... If you ask someone in banking what their advice is, they'll tell you what you know how to get into banking. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, so like, uh, I think um, for 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 me, you know, I think I've benefited in my career from um, not sort of being beholden to uh, traditional. Career trajectories, mm. um, surrounding, focusing on surrounding myself with good people, like really smart people, people who are who care about what they do, who um, who are honest, and you know, for for whom their reputation. Um, on a long-term basis matters more than short-term gains. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the first thing that I'm looking to do now is sort of how do I surround myself with great people? Um, I think being in an environment that supports creativity, new ideas, new markets, um, there's a lot of cynicism in our industry at this point. I think the the big companies are as big as they've ever been. Mm. Um, you know, there's a ton of companies that raised a bunch of seed money a few years ago that are sort of hitting a wall now. Yeah. Um, and uh, And, you know, there's kind of a, There's a feeling in the air that like, you know, which is hilarious, but there's a feeling in the air that like, you can't build any good consumer software anymore, because, you know, the the sort of the, the, the big five are so big and so competent that like, it's, it's, and I think that's, you know, you kind of want to move away from people who, who think like that. Yeah. Um, and it's just a choice. Like you can choose to sort of be cynical and you can choose to spend time with them. Or you can choose to, to sort of face the world with open eyes and optimism and wonder. And, um, and I think you'll find yourself in a much better position to come up with something creative and exciting that you want to spend your time on. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do now. Like I'm a bit, I'm also trying to convince myself of that as I say, this yeah. you know, I think like yeah. trying to be excited about sort of, um, the industry and excited about the opportunities and some of the new things we're seeing, um, to reclaim some of that, like naivete for lack of a better way of putting it, um, is, uh, is what I'm focused on and what I would encourage others to do too. And I'm just trying to be open right now. Like I'll meet with, you know, anyone and spend time on new ideas and new people and it's kind of where I'm
1: at it's good uh top three books you recommend
0: oh i just read both starbucks books um in reverse order <laughs>
1: um, the starbucks experience
0: no Har- howard schultz wrote two books the f- first one's called pour your heart into it the second one is called um i forget but it's basically about like before like starting starbucks and then when he came back as ceo and his story after I just that
1: I to he done the podcast with how i built this oh nice really good
0: he's brilliant and his brilliant. story is incredible and um, I like coffee a lot so that was a fun <laughs> that was a fun read um, I'm reading the new new thing right now um, by Michael Lewis which was a, a recommendation from a friend of mine and I love it it's just like a it's beautifully written and tells the story of Jim Clark the founder of Netscape
1: and nice. um,
0: what else? Uh, I mean, that's kind of like three. If you want to do that's two three.
1: Stop Yeah, it's yeah like thanks. A little bit <laughs> yeah, if you
0: need one more, uh, I highly recommend the Elena Ferrante novels um, uh, that came out about um, two Italian women in Naples and their story growing up together. Uh, probably one of the best series I've read in a, a long time, and, and not nothing to do with technology. And I think the best thing you can do for your sort of creative energy is to um, is to get input from uh, unusual places.
1: Nice, and. What is the next idea for you?
0: you I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. I think I was so focused on electric objects for four years that, um, you know, hadn't really picked my head up and don't have a list of ideas I want to work through. I think I'm, you know, lucky enough that, you know, I can sort of uh, spend a few months just like kind of clearing my head and spending time with other really smart people like you and and the Betaworks folks and, um, you know, let that sort of. Uh, Follow my nose a bit, which I think is, is kind of the, the, the burden of entrepreneurship. Like mm-hmm. it's, not, it's not like you always have an idea that you're always sort of, and you always have a co founder and you're always ready to go. And if you see your career as a series of projects, um, there are going to be these moments in between where you kind of just have to uh, sit. Uh, sit in it you know, and like be okay with the, with, you know, some anxiety that might come from that and be okay with your dad asking like, so are you going to get a job? i <laughs> like, I don't really know how to explain
1: this, but uh, maybe, I don't know. That's funny. Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, where can people find you if they want to reach out?
0: Uh, I'm on Twitter at at Levine. It's probably the easiest way to reach me. Um, website's jakelevine.me um, and would love to
1: chat with anyone. Awesome. Thanks so much. Cool. Thanks. Huge thank you to Betaworks for letting us record that interview at their offices down in Chelsea. Thanks guys. And a massive thank you to Jake for coming on the show and just having a great conversation with myself. Um, post interview, Jake has been a massive help to me personally, and um, he's helped a lot with the kind of fundraising stuff, um, and contracts and just being a really good, um, advisor. So nice one, Jake. Okay, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review on the App Store. They honestly do go a long way. And if this episode brought you any value, why not share it with a friend? Okay, guys, until next time, keep grinding.